My first time was terrifying. My first time was scary. Exciting. Shocking. Traumatic. Sad. Awkward. Weird. Uncomfortable. It's depressing. A relief. I thought I was dying. Meh. <laughs> My first time was horrifying. <laughs> My first time was empowering. My first time. First time. My first time. My name is Janet Mbogwa. I'm a media personality from Kenya, the founder of the award-winning Inuadada Foundation, author of My First Time, which has inspired this podcast about first-time period stories, and I'm a mom of two amazing boys. It's important to me that we continue normalizing and mainstreaming taboo conversations through diverse voices, because when everyone is included, everyone wins. According to studies like Harvard Business Review, evidence shows that when men are deliberately engaged in gender inclusion programs, 96% of organizations see progress compared to the only 30% of organizations where men are not engaged. And this translates right through to menstrual health management. And that's why our conversation today with Alfred Muli is important. He's a menstrual health champion who's been in the space for over a decade. He talks about how we can continue to bring men and boys on board in the push for menstrual justice. Alfred, tell us your name and your first time story. Yeah, so my name is Alfred Muli. My first time story, I don't remember one specific one. I have a lot of them, but there is one that stood out. Um, in primary school, I remember this um, young girl stained a dress and it was our first time quite traumatizing. And what we saw, like, you know, the, the classmates started chasing her and, and shouting and all of us were just following her. And I don't remember her seeing her back in school again. So I think we probably, like the entire school, in a way, chased her out because we didn't know what was happening. I think I was in lower primary that time. She was probably in class six or seven. Yeah, but I, that's the very first time I, I remember seeing that. Like we were running to see what exactly is happening. Um, and it never occurred to me what that was until uh, later on in life. Yeah. yeah. And even at that time, there was no conversations around it in school or in your family. At what point was the conversation introduced to you? Yeah, no, even at at school, even during that day, like we, we were curious and asking and no, 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 that, you know, those are girls issues. So boys never get to hear about it. Even at home, I mean, I grew up with my nieces and my sisters, but I, the first time we ever had those conversations was like when my niece was already after school, like when we lived together, that's the only time we could have those conversations. It was, it was also because I was working in the space. Um, yeah. And again, she was also comfortable enough to talk to me about it. But like in school, they would touch on the subject when we're talking about reproductive health, but not quite in detail, especially for a man to understand. Because I mean, you will understand the biology, but I think for us men, we also need to understand how we can be of help, how we can be supportive. And that's the piece that's usually missing. And just how that attitude and the tone that it's taught, then you know that it's not your territory. You don't or you shouldn't uh, engage. We'll get to that soon. So let's go back to the one story or maybe piece of information that convinced you that you have a role to play in menstrual justice. There must have been something that made you say, 
I'm going to participate in these conversations and I'm going to play a role in making sure that girls and women have access. What was that turning point for you? Yeah, funny enough, it was after, after you know, university. I, at the time, I was working with the Kenya Medical Research Institute and my supervisor and mentor then, uh, Professor Karama, got a consulting gig to do, you know, what we now know as K-SHIP um, project. And the donor wanted us to integrate uh, menstrual health into sanitation. I mean, I'd been working a lot in the sanitation space, but, you know, we were never talking about MHM. And so when I was told to go and look at, you know, the study out there when basically doing the desktop review, I discovered there was not a lot of information and a lot of information that was out there was not quite standardized. And I felt, you know, it was interesting that for me, you know, as an adult then, I knew almost nothing about uh, menstruation. And again, you know, my background is actually in public health. Mm. So, and still I discovered there was a lot I still needed to learn to know. And there was not much research. And when I dig deeper into the studies, I discovered, oh, there is it might look like you know a landmark uh, body change but it actually impacts how um, a girl or a woman would actually live the rest of her life it's 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 such an important uh, point of entry and it, i was just shocked that a lot of us were not focusing on that and i started focusing on that um, and when I moved then to Wash United, we were just then starting Menstrual Hygiene Day. Uh, if you remember, you know, the meetings would be at the Wash United office in Lovington. We were like just 20 or so organizations. Um, and just through such initiatives, then people started talking about it. And it was also interesting, like when you talk about it, even in the in the sector meetings, they're like, oh, God, these people, they like talking about menstruation mm -hmm. in a sanitation uh, conference or in a sanitation Like it uh, didn't forum. fit in. Yeah, it didn't. Yeah. yeah, so we were looked at like the weird ones. <laughs> and especially for me as a man, like I was, yeah, that weird Wash United guy. Like, yeah, so no, I think uh, a lot of those um, issues came to light when I was already an adult, actually already a practitioner in the space. So you moved from being a practitioner, somebody who was invested in the conversation, somebody who thought... I should know this information by now, but I don't. You move from that to becoming essentially a male ally because you can be at that point where you say, I have the information and choose to do something about it or choose not to. Mm -hmm. You've over the last few years invested in being an ally um, to a lot of women and girls in menstrual health. You, you've, you've talked about menstrual cups largely. That's a lot of how a lot of us know you. Um, and even as we spoke recently, it's something that you are still so invested in. Tell us about that point where you thought this is a lifelong commitment for me. Was it the menstrual injustice that you saw a lot of girls and women face or was it just a part of you saying this is my responsibility as a man, as an ally to stand with women and girls um, and talk about menstruation? Yeah, so it's been a journey. So maybe a small background about myself. I lost my mom when I was like four years and I, so my early life was shaped by women, mostly my grandmother and my sisters-in-law. Uh, and even be beyond that, I've always been a curious kid. Like I always ask questions that people are not comfortable to ask. And I think that was also nurtured in me uh, since I was a small kid. 
and i also grew up in a lot of parts of you know in a lot of parts in kenya one because my brother and the wife who brought me up and my brother is a cop and so we moved a lot in kenya and i started challenging you know socialization from that time because you know i leave the village move to another county and the things i heard about that county are not true so i've always had that open mind that maybe what is being said might not necessarily be true and so when i started working in menstrual health i reflected a lot on the myths and the taboos i grew up seeing and hearing uh and i discovered that they were actually not true and the only solution was to give the right information um but also to you know stand out and speak about it and i i feel like you know it's been rewarding to just speak about it just speaking about it like people would be like oh so actually men can also talk about it uh so men also have a role and so in in the process of talking about it and engaging in a lot of the programs and research work i i was able to identify a lot of the gaps and i think and i feel like now me filling those gaps is very rewarding and i don't think it will stop like you know menstruation will be here forever and as much as you know we've done a lot of work on the issue we now have a policy and all that but every time you go to the field you discover we still have a lot of work to do you that's discover, always it yeah there is yeah. a lot we still have a lot to do so you we're going to go into the policies just now in the framework especially because we're going into a transitory period as a country and we need to think through how the policy implementation can take shape in some way um how we'll work with women and girls but you mentioned just now that you'd he- you'd hear myths and um all these kinds of different narratives about periods even though you also mentioned loosely you you didn't quite know much what is the one myth or misconception that you remember hearing that you kind of carried with you into adulthood about girls and women and their bodies and periods yeah i think one and not just me it's a lot of men that menstruation is dirty right like now that realization that it's actually not dirty is life changing for a lot of people um even just recently there was a you know a study i was doing on menstruation in the workplace and the moment men understood how menstruation happens uh they were really shocked to understand that there is nothing dirty about menstruation it's just how we are socialized to to look at it as being dirty really that there, there is nothing dirty about about menstruation so, do do men want to be involved in these conversations and i ask that because again this conversation around male allyship has really gained momentum over the last few years whether it's around menstrual health whether it's around um fighting gender based violence mm-hmm. but specifically around menstrual health i remember in 2014 i think when i was also beginning the conversation there weren't as many alfreds as we have now yeah. which is amazing to see but i also want to know the mindset that men have when they're walking into a room knowing that these conversations are happening or wherever they are in a space with women what what exactly is the frame of mind is it fear is it concern is it concern that they'll be labeled as mm-hmm. you say you know weird and they'd rather than not ask anything about periods or do they want to be invited into the conversations what have you seen what have you felt yeah so it's actually a combination of uh, a lot of things so one is um there is that uh fear that they don't know like the fear of the unknown right like you don't know what this uh, menstruation is so there is fear around that um but then there is also this misconception and i mean 
socialization is such a powerful thing. Like I always believe like it's really easy to learn than to unlearn. So for you are 30, whatever number of years you are, you've learned and been socialized and believed that menstruation, for example, is that is a woman issue. Men need not to be involved. Now someone comes and tells you there is actually a role you can play. Now, so there is that uh, journey where that, the first is actually shock that, oh, I am expected to know about it, to be of help, to be supportive. And then now you change their mindset through, of course, the right information. And you discover they, there is that feeling like I should have done the, I should have started this earlier. And once you have men converted, they become really good allies. And they can now uh, stand, stand up for women even beyond menstruation, right? Because menstruation is just like one of the many things that, you know, the system um, would use against women. So once you have men converted, then you, you start seeing them even standing up for women in other spaces and um, on other issues. How much have you seen male allyship shift um, empathy towards women and girls and even shift the uptake of being menstrual champions and just standing with women and girls. Um, how much can male allyship play in the push to end menstrual justice? No, we, we definitely need a lot of men involved. Uh, and simply because in a lot of the spaces, men are still, because of the system, you know, the patriarchal system we have, men are still decision makers in most, in, in most homes, in most offices. And so, you know, resources like, Again, let's not forget that for us to address menstrual health and menstrual injustice, we also need to invest resources. So you want, for example, in an office, if the manager is a man or the CEO is a man, to be able to understand why are we investing in a better wash uh, infrastructure for the women? Why are we also investing in products? Why are we investing in time off, right? Like Because not everyone would be able to work uh, when they are on their menstruation, depending again on many other factors, because it's a really... Uh, personal and intimate and unique experience for everyone. Now, the other bit that I really like uh, men to being involved and how they can shift that, we also have this mindset that it's only what you've seen. So, for example, if your wife has, doesn't have cramps or, you know, she has cramps, whatever, that's what you believe about menstruation, but it's, it's unique to everyone. And so that understanding creates a lot of empathy uh, for everyone, right? Not just like, I mean, people, you know, want, sometimes people would say like, just target them through, you know, mention their mother, mention their daughter, mention their wives, but I think it's for everyone, right? That's a very skewed way to, to look at it. So once men understand that menstruation is unique and different for everyone then you'll be able to be empathetic to everyone whether you are related or not and that's how then they will start identifying gaps oh street children oh uh, women in prison uh, oh women in my office everyone you start looking you need to look at menstruation from everyone's perspective and not just like you know like currently we are doing just at school yeah it has to be beyond i'm so glad you mentioned that because i think looking at it beyond the scope of women and girls in a man's life, it needs to go beyond that. Otherwise, in many ways, it um, it almost diminishes the role that somebody can play in advancing mm -hmm. the conversation. Let's let's move a little bit towards the, the framework. And I know we were all there when it started being done, I think a few years ago, and it was launched in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, there's many conversations to be had about the policy implementation. But what are your thoughts on how this framework, this policy can also improve the lives of women and girls. Because a lot of people feel as though it's sitting on a shelf. 
there's little that's been done to implement it. Um, your thoughts on how it can help and whether you think much is being done, and then we'll address um, the period that's coming shortly in the country. Yeah, so I think, yes, it's great that we have uh, a policy. And when we were developing the policy, the idea was that, yeah, we needed to hold the government accountable. We need the government to coordinate the space. And, you know, back in the days, we had, you know, the Interagency Coordinating Committee, and under that, we had the seven or eight technical working groups, and that really pushed the agenda. And, of course, you know, people like yourself doing that in the media, uh, uh, and of course, having allies and champions at the Ministry of Health, that really fast-tracked the process. But I feel like we, once the policy was launched, we celebrated and we felt like that was the end goal. Yet, I think the end goal should it was not to just have the policy there, rather the implementation. And we do also have the, you know, the strategy, but it's not yet been implemented. I think, one, we still need government to give leadership. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, they, a lot of the MHM work is still being led by CSOs, uh, but they cannot do as much as the government can. So we still want government to stand up, be held accountable, and invest in actualizing this policy. And, you know, it could be, you know... Um, uh, increasing funding that goes into the implementation of that policy. It could also just be like, again, coordinating the actors because everyone, I feel like everyone has a role to play and somehow everyone is doing, you know, is playing a role. Like whether you are in education, you are addressing MHM in a way, whether you are in health. So it's it's one of those uh, issues that anyone can find home, but we also need it coordinated so that all these efforts can be amplified um, and, you know, the advocacy at that level would be higher to just again actualize this policy. So what I do know is that there are some counties that have uh, started the, the process. For example, Kilifi, they now have their own policy that they have dem domesticated is now at the county assembly. It's not yet been approved. Other counties like Omabay, Migori, Kisi, um, they have now steering committees at, at you know at the county level. So we still you know we have a lot of counties that are working on it. But yeah, like those are just few counties out of the forty-seven. And to your point, it has to be a much larger coordinated effort yep. where we're finding some kind of implementation across counties, not yeah. just in select counties. Yeah. And probably those counties also have a leadership, to your point, yeah. that encourages that or that allows for that. Yeah. And so you're absolutely right. There needs to be something that's almost streamlined mm -hmm. and uniform yeah. across the board. Yeah. When we are looking at transitions um, and countries going through different periods of time, we're about to go through an election, probably by the time this episode is yeah. going up, either before or after. Um, and so how can this policy play a role in making sure that girls and women, because we're one of the countries where a lot of the time when voting takes place, people don't go back to work. Yeah. There's kind of a lull or a period where we're waiting for the results and thereafter. Yeah. Um, and so there's already a lot of women and girls trying to figure out what they're going to do to navigate this transitory period. Yeah. How can people approach that without being alarmist, but also with being by being realistic and by being able to cushion, especially those left furthest behind, mm -hmm. just to ensure that that's not a concern that they have, that they're able to just know, I'm going to be able to find my way through until there's a sense of normalcy that returns. Yeah. I think, again, to still actualize the policy because the policy is big on uh, equity and inclusion. Uh, and of course, you know, menstruation is one of those areas that we can also consider to be unique needs of uh, menstruating uh, women or girls. And so the government, one, would want to make sure there is access 
to to you know to the products uh to to the girls everywhere you know not just in school because i think there is a lot of huge focus in in school i would also want to look at it from also like uh menstruation in the workplace we 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 love um uh you know women working in the polling stations for long hours they will need breaks they will need uh you know good wash infrastructure so those are things that government uh should be pushing for and actually it should be bringing to the light so that it, it it's not big deal when we say that in a polling station the washroom should be you know mhm friendly yeah i'm sure if you go to some places and you say that people will be like no how is it even necessary so really the government again of course all of us will will have we have our role but the government again should bring should give leadership and also direction right uh we from the policy we we should have had a lot of guidelines on different things including now you know mhm in the workplace uh the products themselves the standards all that should already be there so i think uh the government should ensure they work with the partners in the different spaces to actually have access to products for you know those who have traveled up country and they don't have access or those who will still be working uh in the election processes mm. yeah that's really smart to just make sure that there's standards across the board irrespective of which department or institution yeah. women and girls and for us i think that's what we talk about when we say menstrual equity or menstrual justice is making sure that wherever menstruators are they have access yeah. um to the products and information they need yeah you've just talked a little bit about products you worked a lot with um menstrual cups and we were speaking earlier and i wanted to get your thoughts on um the uptake of menstrual cups in the country we do know that sustainable period products is the ideal way to go <laughs> the world over that would be for lack of a better word the dream yeah. but there's also a concern about what about access to water what about access to wash facilities which you've mentioned what has been your experience with the uptake of menstrual cups uh, across the board and what more do you think needs to be done to get us to the space where we are reusable as opposed to disposable yeah so i think for menstrual cups and a lot of the you know reusable menstrual materials you need education like you just go can't go out and distribute the way we do with disposable sanitary pads you've got to train people on how to use but more even more importantly out you must break the silence and address a lot of myths in particular with menstrual cups there is the myth that oh if you use a cup it will break your virginity and all that so it opens a lot of you know discussions around the myths and taboos so one education is very important and then the other thing i learned uh, over time is that with menstrual cup there is what like we call a menstrual cup adoption journey uh, so obviously the very first time you train a group of you know women or girls and go back it's probably like maybe 20% of them that will be using after 6 weeks then you go back after 6 months it will be around 80 or so and then after one year it will be uh, like 100% now the reason being that for most people they will want their peers to have tried it before they can adopt it uh, and again because so long as the training again is done by someone who has used the cup i think there are a lot of manuals out there on how to, to use a cup but i think they are just specific hacks uh, 
that only someone who uses the cup would be able to to address. So yeah, those you know the the conversations, the training uh, really helps with people uh, adopting the cups. Yeah, water. Yes, water. You need water to uh, clean, and mm-hmm. it's not a lot of water actually. Uh, when you know when I worked with Ruby Cup, they did a study in northern Uganda in the refugee communities, and they discovered that you know for you know for all the menstrual material because they you know they were giving a variety, the menstrual cup was the one that required the least amount of money, at least amount of water. Of course, you do need water for hand washing before and after, uh, changing the product, but like the actual amount of water that goes into cleaning the product mm-hmm. uh, is very, very little. Cleaning the product and maintaining the hygiene. Yes, yes. Because okay. you have to boil it in between the cycles, and it could just be that you just immerse it in in a cup, in a, you know, in a in a hot, in in a cup with hot water. I feel like this reusable products is a whole other series of conversations. Yeah, I was interested in hearing it from you because you've worked with reusable products for quite some time. Yeah. What are you doing now? You're still very much a part and parcel of the menstrual health, you know, hygiene management space. Yeah, you have somewhat transitioned. How are you still playing a supportive role in scaling MHM access? Yeah, so actually, you know, shifted a little bit and now I'm doing mostly monitoring and evaluation. Uh, But, you know, I reflected, you know, for quite some time and realized I really miss the menstrual health space. And again, it's a lot of experience. People are calling you and asking questions. So my friends and I have started a social enterprise called Unlearn Innovation Hub. And it's just really a platform where you now are able to unlearn socialization with an open mind because, I mean, you are socialized. Uh, without uh, an open mind like it's just pushed to you this is what you see this is what you learn and that becomes your reality but of course as an adult then you discover oh a lot of those things need to be unlearned and unlearn is is really difficult so at the moment in terms of menstrual health unlearn innovation hub does uh, menstrual road trips yeah cool thing cool things because <laughs> uh, i mean you we need to find ways of raising awareness so we do menstrual road trips mostly partner with community-based organizations we do a road trip on the way we talk to people but when we get to the to the communities we do training and the CBOs continues with that conversation and with you know the sustainability bit around it yeah we did one on MH day with a, a group of friends uh, but also with a number of partners including Eels for Pads, Zana, Ruby Cup, um, Octre and a lot of other organizations in Nakuru. So in in um, October, we are headed to Samburu. So we actually at the moment uh, mapping out partners and uh, trying to figure out how we'll get to Samburu and raise the awareness. That's amazing. It's a very cool concept. And I think once a menstrual health champion, always a menstrual health champion. Yeah, you never leave. You (laughs) never leave because to your point, you're constantly discovering and learning and improving Mm -hmm. um, and even enlightening yourself as much as you're enlightening the beneficiaries of the information you have. Um, And it's it's always so much pride and joy to speak to fellow menstrual champions who are still passionately invested in the space. Yeah, true. Now, as we wind up, you've already talked earlier on about um, the role that men play, the role that boys play. What would be your message to somebody listening to this who either has a companion or a friend who they don't quite know how to broach mm-hmm. the conversation of menstrual health with them and they happen to be a man? Yeah. Uh, what's your role to, uh, what's your message to how men can fully be invested and involved 
um, in the push towards menstrual justice? Yeah, so one, you really have to unlearn what it means to be a man, right? Because, I mean, talking about menstruation, sometimes people think you are not man enough. Uh, so that's one. And then number two, I think we also need to leave the boardrooms and go to the ground. Because, I mean, a lot of the men making decisions on menstrual health sometimes are just seated in the offices. And when you ask them to invest in, you know, in menstrual health, they don't see the need. So we need men to get out there and just see firsthand how important it is to address menstrual health. And just, again, be open-minded into us, you know, listening, for example, to a podcast like this that is talking about menstruation. Um, again, uh, you know, being out there and standing up for women on menstruation, but also on other things, right? Like, you know, uh, there is a lot of power that men uh, hold in, in our society simply because of the structure of the, um, the system. So, again, use that power to the benefit of everyone. So it's, it's as easy as just learning about menstruation, reaching out to people who are doing a project on menstruation and you can go to the field and see it in, in, you know, in real time, but also just normalize these conversations. Normalize them. Have those conversations at the dinner table with your wife, with your daughter. When you go for family meetings, talk about it. When you go for your chamas, talk about it. Yeah, like they will, people might think you are weird, but then you don't know five years down the line, you'll have changed the lives of so many people. Because yeah, menstruation is such an important landmark change that should be celebrated. But again, it, it's been a barrier for so many women and girls uh, in the past. And I think we all have a role to play. And yeah, men also have a big role to play. Okay. Yeah. But of course, you have to be respectful and talk about menstruation, um, you know, respectively. And again, making sure you don't also want uh, to be the one dictating the conversation. Women still have to lead these conversations and we come as allies or as support. I think yeah, it's also important to mention that you have to listen to the people who actually menstruate. Because again, it's a unique and um, yeah, it's a unique and sometimes intimate uh, process. Okay. Very well said. Alfred, thank you. Thank you for championing and for everything that you do. And we hope to have you back here soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for, you know, keeping the conversations going. Um, yeah, I think we need it. All right. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to my First Time Stories podcast, where we're pushing for menstrual justice one story at a time.